Hi, this is the podcast channel of Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, Canada. We are a family. We don't do life alone. We are about the one, each and every one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our hope and prayer is always for life change. Here is today's message. Be blessed as you listen. We are on a series, uh, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So uh, if, you want to, if you want to give this particular teaching a topic, you can get, say God of the promise. God of the promise. Uh, there's going to be quite a few Bible passages. I'm not going to apologize, but if you... Um, but please, if you can, follow us um, in that. So our main text is Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, 15 to 20. I'm reading from Amplified, Hebrews 6, 15 to 20. And so, having patiently waited, he realized the promise. So, he here is um, Abraham. In the miraculous birth of Isaac, as a pledge of what was to come from God. Indeed, men swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them, in all disputes, the oath serves as a confirmation of what has been said and is an end of the dispute. In the same way, God, in his desire to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, intervened and guaranteed it with an oath, so that two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, um, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to him for refuge would have strong encouragement and indwelling strength to hold tightly to the hope set before us. 19. This hope, this confident assurance we have as an anchor of the soul, it cannot slip and it cannot break, break, break down under whatever pressure bears on it. A safe and steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the, of the heavenly temple. That, mo- that most holy place which the very presence of God dwells. 20, that's the last one um, for now. Where Jesus has entered in advance as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, praise God. I know there's a lot in that scripture. We want to use it as an anchor text to unpack what we want to discuss today. Um, God of the promise. So as we know, uh, maybe by definition, uh, but we always know it by experience first before we check the dictionary. Um, When people promise us and uh, they fail, that's, that's kind of the first experience of somebody letting us down. They say they're going to do something and they don't do it. So a, a promise is a declaration or assurance that somebody will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. That's the noun version of it. As a verb, somebody can promise, like I promise you. So it's also a verb. And, you know, God did both. He, he, he promised and he gave a, a promise. So as an interaction, anyone can, can feed in here. What makes people not keep their promise? Anyone can help. What makes people not keep their promise? 
They are liars, Jesus. That was the first thing that I They are liars. Okay. God will help those liars in Jesus' name. <laughs> um, sorry? Limitation. Limitation. They lack ability. Yeah? Okay. Anyone else? Why do people not keep their promises? Sorry? They forget. Wow. God will help those kind of people in Jesus' name. Please don't forget. If you promise, I'll remind you. Um, okay, so uh, some of the things I wrote here, you, you've said they lack ability. Sometimes they lack capacity. They want to do it. And Pastor talked about this last year as well when he was talking about I will help you. Uh, somebody said they lie. Sometimes they change their mind. They might promise and then they say, I'm not doing it again. And then sometimes they are not present to see through. You know, you have uh, somebody who is like, uh, you know, somebody that promised you something, but for one reason or the other, they are not present to see through. But we have a God. Praise God. We have a God. He has the capacity. He has the ability. And he has also the staying power to see through. Praise God. So that's what we want to unpack today. The fact that God has the staying power and commitment to the promise. And also his demonstration of his power as a way of showing and evidencing that he is committed to what he said. And the last one is that our alignment to obtain the promise. So the way I've kind of structured this, I, I want to encourage you to follow me here, is it's almost as making a case for God's faithfulness. Making a case. You know that it's easy when we come to church. Brandy says God is faithful. I say yes. You know, my wife says God is faithful. I say ever faithful. But what is grounding us in that understanding that God is faithful? And to be able to unpack that, we actually need to go before um, Abraham. And I start by saying what is and why the promise. So I want to focus on a particular promise that God made and how through time he has, he has uh, fulfilled that promise. And that's why I said God of the promise. So I'm not focusing on all promises. I'm just God of the promise. Using the story of Abraham, but I'm going back to go forward. So I start by saying that the message of the Bible is the promise. So if you want to summarize the Bible that we carry as believers, the intention of God that preserved the message of the Bible to date is the promise that the Bible is carrying. If you want to summarize it another way, you want to summarize Genesis to Revelation, you say it starts with Jesus will come and save mankind. He came to save mankind and is coming back to judge and rule. But that might not be 100% complete. You can say, through Jesus Christ, God is restoring the world to its original design. As a result of mankind's rejection of God and his plan, the world is in a state of brokenness. Jesus entered into that broken world and, uh, and hurting world to die on the cross to restore mankind to God. I think that has a bit more depth in summarizing the message of the Bible. So as Christians, when we read the Bible, it's very important to look at the message of the Bible from the lens of what I've just said. How does what I'm reading, whether I'm in Habakkuk, 
or Malachi or Jeremiah or Lamentation? How does this link to the, the plan of Jesus to redeem mankind? And how does it link to God's original design for mankind? If you get what I've just said, let me just see you wave or nod or anything. That when you are reading the Bible, look at it from the lens of how is what I'm reading related to God's original design for man and the redemptive plan that came through Jesus Christ. I will unpack that. So, what is the original plan? Let's start from there. What is the original plan? In Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the production team will have to help me here. I did put a disclaimer that describes a few verses. The original plan of God with the creation of man is that man will be the likeness and image of God with dominion over every created thing and life everlasting. You know, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says that. Um, I'm going to be putting the scriptures up uh, for people that want to maybe fact check some of the things I'm saying, uh, but I may not read all of them. And then as we see, obviously, we know that Moses is the author of Genesis. But one thing that we have to also appreciate is that Moses was not there. Right? So Moses is writing what God showed to him in the way that he understands it and is the way God intended it to be documented. So as we see by Moses in Genesis, God, as part of the creation of man, gave man something we call will. Some people say they don't like that. Why does God give us will? But then if God doesn't give us will, we are not in his image. If God doesn't give us will, then we might as well be robots. But God has given us a will that we can do whatever we want with that will in our decision-making and the choice that we make. However, that choice, um, as we see in Genesis 2.9, Genesis 2.9, uh, so Genesis 2.9 talks about the desire of God to create man in his image, and man will have autonomy to exercise his will. But in doing that, everybody's thinking about Adam now and just blaming the guy, but we'll get there. All right. So in doing that, uh, you see the options that God gave man. Genesis 2.9, and in the garden, the Lord caused to grow from the ground every tree that is desirable and pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What I want you to take from this verse particularly is that Moses is communicating the choice that came about from the will that God gave man. You can choose life or you can choose to be the one that decides what is good and what is evil. The same way God can demarcate stuff. You can decide that I don't want to be on the agenda of the life-giving option that God has given. I want to make my own decisions. And in Genesis 2.16, Genesis 2.16, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may freely, unconditionally eat the fruit from every tree, but only the tree from the knowledge of good and evil 
you shall not eat. Again, what I want you to think about that in that text is that God actually told man, you can eat the tree of life. That is what I want you to eat. Are you following me here? It says, oh, there's so many trees. We always kind of think that. But in this verse, it's talking about two trees only. And it says, of all these trees, I don't want you to eat knowledge of good and evil. In that conversation, the only tree that was left is the tree of life. Okay. So as we see in Genesis, man was presented with two trees. And uh, when we think about Adam, it is less of he ate of fruit than he did not believe God. You know, let me say that again. It was less about the conduct and more about the rejection of what God has said, which is believing God and faith in God to say, this is the tree of life. Eat it. So, man in exercising his will, I'm going to use uh, will and will, man in exercising his will willingly rejected what God, the life-giving plan that God has given to him. So, I say all of that to say that in the sovereignty of God, the redemption plan of God in Christ Jesus is the solution to that original plan that man rejected. I want to say something very quickly. Every time I've read Genesis, it's hard for a percentage of my body not to blame Adam. Who else is in that camp? Okay. So, one question that came to my mind recently is, if you were Adam, based on how you lived your life so far, and the choices that you have made to date, Will humanity have a chance? So why do we give Adam such a hard time? Because the reality is that the same choice the man, Adam, faced is the same choice we face every day as, a, as an unbeliever. And then the moment we decide that we are going to eat from the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ, we become people that hold on to the faith that gives us that righteousness to be counted just with God. So, I want us to, when we look at, you know, those scriptures, look at it with that lens that I am a man, I have will, and how have I exercised this will so far? As we're coming to church this morning, there was a sermon that was going on, um, and what he said was so, was so critical. You know, like, Sometimes as believers, you can go, oh, you know, the devil made me do it. Like, you know, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to do it, but, you know, it did it. And, and the pastor's like, as believers, as Christians, that cannot be in our vocabulary because it would make God a liar because the Bible talks about the fact that sin will not have dominion over us. Right? The sin will not have dominion over us. However, will, will, that God will not take away from you. You have to subject will to the authority of God because that is you. You cannot abdicate, you cannot abdicate the responsibility of will. It is you and you. And the more believers can own will 
and subject it to the authority of God, the less we would be making comments like, oh, I couldn't help it. It just happened. The devil made me. The devil. No, no, no. Let's less, less take responsibility. So anyway, I, I then say that the redemptive plan of God in Christ Jesus was introduced to the plan. So the promise was first introduced in Genesis 3.15 when God was saying to Adam as a promise that a savior would one day come and crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15. That was the first um, indication um, in the Bible that Jesus was being introduced into the picture as the seed and that he will destroy the works of Satan. And we see that in 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8, when uh, it talks about the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So that is when the promise was first introduced. And uh, we also know in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 14, that Jesus defeated Satan when he died on the cross. Glory to God. Hebrews 2.14 talks about, Therefore, since this is children, that's us, share in the flesh and blood the physical nature of mankind, Jesus himself in a similar manner also shared in the same physical nature, but without sin, so that through experiencing death, it might make powerless, ineffective, impotent, him who had the power over death, that is the devil. So I summarize this section by saying the original plan of God, so the original will and intention of God with the creation of man and the redemptive plan, that is the introduction of Jesus into this scenario, captures every other promise that is made to man. So what I mean by saying that is, Every other promise that we talk about in the Bible rests on this promise, rests on this plan. So if you are holding on to a promise of God and you can't link it to the redemptive work of Christ, you need to continue to read the Bible. Praise God. That's all I'll say. God staying power and commitment to the promise. So again, I started by saying that making a case for God's faithfulness. When you think about the story that we've just heard in Genesis and the fact that they, there was indeed a man that was also called Adam by name and he had kids and his kids had kids. Um, some historians and theologians believe obviously that there are 20 generations between Adam to Noah uh, so that's, uh, uh, sorry, Adam to Noah, 10 generations. Noah to Abraham, 10 generations. So that's 20 in all. In Matthew 1.17, talks about all of the generations of Abraham to David, and then up until you get to uh, Jesus. Now, when you read that in the Bible, it's so easy to go, 10 generations, 10 generations. But if you imagine the staying power of God, to give a promise to a man and go, even when you have great, 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 great grandchildren, that promise, it will still be there as if I made it just now. And when the time comes, it will be fulfilled. Glory be to God. 
So in making a case for God's faithfulness, we talk about God's staying power. The ability for God to not change the, his mind. The capacity of God to continue to stay the same. So the capacity of God to deliver a promise or to deliver this promise did not... So get this. The capacity and ability of God to fulfill the promise he made did not have an impact on the fact that Cain killed Abel. Because when you think about it, when Satan heard that the son or the seed of, the seed of uh, Adam and Eve will be the ones to crush his head, and then they gave it to Abel and Cain, and God said, Abel is righteous. So, you know, it's plausible that you'd be like, let's do something with this Abel. The same way Satan wanted to do something when Jesus was born. Because, and the, the thing that I want you guys to appreciate is that Satan also does not know the end. It's so important that we know this. He knows his future, but he does not know, like, he does not know the happenings. Like, he does, not, uh, he does not have the knowledge to see the future. So he, he, he relies on information. So Abel is righteous. Let's do something about that. Oh, the wise men came to Herod and said, Oh, it, that king we've been expecting is coming. Look at that amount of guess game you have to do as the devil to say, Let's just kill all of them. Let's just kill all the boys. And over time in the Bible, you will see instances where the enemy, based on information, tries to play tricks. And he does that in the lives of believers sometimes. Plays on information. Plays back information that we should not, should not be relevant in our work with God. Plays it back to us as if he knows what is going to happen. But he's a liar. He's the author of lies and we know that he has failed. Glory be to God. Again, God's staying power, uh, you know, in 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9, 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9, talks about the fact that God is not slack in his promises. But, you know, there's a fruit of the Spirit called long-suffering, and it typifies the character of God in just staying, staying, and go, oh, guys, oh, you messed that up. Okay, that will be fixed. But it's not like, oh, how will I fix? You see, this is the thing. It's not like God's like, how will I fix? It's like, I, I'm already there. I'm already there, and I have made provision um, in Jesus Christ. And all, in all this, God has been consistent. He, he continues to demonstrate his consistency by other promises. So the same way God said to Adam and Eve, oh, you know, um, your seed is coming and he will do this. When God blessed Abraham in his walk, the blessing of Isaac was a matter. I, I, I want to call Isaac a material blessing for one second. But what I mean is a physical blessing. So he, he wanted a son. He desired a son. God blessed him with a son. But God was also using that blessing to communicate the promise. Your only begotten son. Go and sacrifice him. All of those things are um, what some people call like a, a type of and speaking to uh, what will happen 
um, in the future. And that's why um, Abraham was able to say God will raise him up. There's a walk that Abraham had walked. And there are things that God had showed him for him to be able to hold on to God and say God will raise him. And, um, you know, uh, in John, in John 8, when, when Jesus was speaking to uh, a Jewish audience, he said something that opened our eyes to understand the encounter that Abraham had uh, with God. So Jesus said something like, he said in, in John 8, he said, uh, your father Abraham greatly rejoiced to see my day. And then Jesus said, he saw it and he was delighted. So Abraham was holding on to what Abraham was holding on to is beyond the physical blessing of Isaac. What Abraham is holding on to is the plan of God to reconcile mankind to himself. And that is what he saw. That is what delighted him. Obviously, the Jews were not very pleased with, God, um, with Jesus saying that. So God demonstrated through prophecies and through promises all of the detail um, of what was going to happen. But sometimes when we read it, you know, uh, for example, I'll say um, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Um, sometimes we think, oh, okay, God will, ah, where am I going to find this Mary that will do this? You, you, you know, but yes, God, God requires man to align to his will, but he is also there. So it is impossible for God's promises to fail in the sense that, I, I need to say this, like, it is impossible for God's promises to fail in the sense that he has already been there and he has seen it happen. So when we say God is faithful, it is not just a, a religious saying. It is a saying that is backed up in the capacity of God, in the staying power of God, um, about his promises, but also in the fact that he is already there. So he's not shocked. So when God says, oh, he will perform miracles, he will be born in the lineage of Abraham and David, you know, this was in Jeremiah, uh, his ministry will be preceded by a messenger, Isaiah prophesied that, he will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. You know, all of these things that were prophesied 2,000 uh, years even be, or before or more before Jesus came um, happened. One, God is not shocked or surprised that those things happened because he, he knew they were going to happen. That's point number one. But the second thing about this is that when people analyzed all of the things that happened in the 24 hours before Jesus was killed, they said for one of those things to happen, as somebody has said it years ago, the odds of it is just ridiculous. And I think over 20-something happened within 24 hours. Of everything, like Jeremiah said something in something busy. Isaiah said something in something busy. All of those things happened. And every detail. You know, like every... So imagine how hard it would be for man to orchestrate all of these things. And say, what did he say again in Isaiah? Oh, that it will be, you have a messenger. Okay, let's look for him. You know, the impracticality of it is just demonstrating the power of God. And all of this 
for God to say one thing, which is, my original plan is for man to have dominion, to be in my image. And I have a plan to make sure that that happens. And that plan is in the person of Jesus. Let somebody shout hallelujah. So all of these guys, um, guys, fathers, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, um, in Hebrews, um, they, they were described as people of great faith. You know, Hebrews are that by faith, by faith. And we're seeing all of the things. None of them goes, I accept Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior. But they did things that God imputed to them as righteousness. So I, 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 I picture it as they caught the wave. They caught the wave of, even though we can't quite explain it, but from the demonstration of God's promises in our lives, we know one thing. We are in this world, but there is more to this world than what we live now. So you can imagine that they have a sense that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. But they would not be able to contain or capture that in, in a sentence. So that's why Joseph could go, how can I do this to my God? He didn't say, ah, that's so wrong. You know, he said, how can I do this? At the time when he said it, there was no thou shalt not commit adultery. There was nothing like that. But that conviction of how can I do this to my God, that's the kind of example that we're seeing in Hebrews as how they've talked about these fathers in faith. But for more depth, in, um, in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, um, verse 13, the Bible talks about that all of these people, the Abel, the Enoch, the Methuselah, the, all of them, they died in faith, holding on to God without receiving the tangible fulfillment of God's promise, only having seen like Abraham did or anticipated them, having welcomed them from a distance, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. The promise, the blessing of Abraham. So when we say Abraham's blessings or Abraham's blessing, the main Abraham blessing is this promise. The, you know, not, not the material. The main Abraham blessing is the promise. Why? Because it is the one that is universal. You know, if you already have five kids, I didn't, this is not my, in my list. So if you already have five kids, right, and you say Abraham's blessings are mine, that cannot be speaking about children. Because you already have five kids. And Abraham had what? He had one with uh, Hagar. He had one with, um, with Sarah. Do you, do you get what I mean? Like, if you, if you, you know, if, if you're already wealthy, and you say Abraham's blessings are mine, for example, it, 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 in terms of being a believer, anyway, I will not dwell on that point. All I will say is that the main promise and the main blessing of Abraham is specific, is universal, such that everyone that is a believer can claim it. Everyone that is a believer, we are, in, we are heirs of that promise. And when God says, I will make a great nation out of you, as a prophecy, it means that that great nation, they are not just Jews. There is also Gentiles, which is the reality that we live today, that not, 
actually, there are more believers that are not Jewish than Jews. And that is a great nation. So, if the promise is what Jesus would do and make available to all those who have been made righteous, how did Abraham and others get it? For analytical people, I'm sure somebody's been asking that question, but, you know, Jesus came after them, so, okay, let's go. All right, so Hebrews 11:40, just the next verse says, Because God had us in mind and had something better for us, so that they, all of the men and women of faith that we've mentioned, would not be made perfect, that is completed in him apart from us. So, so to go straight to the point, the promise that God promised Abraham, that he promised all of the great men of faith that lived before Jesus died and resurrected, was only completed when Jesus paid the price for mankind. So up until that time, there was an expectation too that when Jesus pays the price, obviously they don't know the details, but when Jesus did what he was coming to do, they would be made perfect. And that's why Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 22, you know, talking about this in detail and elaborating says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and, and to the general assembly of the firstborn who are registered as citizens in heaven and to God who is judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous. So this is the key part here. The spirits of the righteous. Who are those people that we are talking about there? Abel, Abraham, all of those guys. The spirit of the righteous made perfect. So they were righteous. Jesus did what he came to do. They were made perfect. Glory be to God. And God in his design made it that we who are living now, we don't have to live in that kind of wait patiently like Abraham did. We accept Jesus as our Lord and personal Savior, and we are heirs of that promise. And that's why in Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so it is with you. So understand that it is the people who live by faith with confidence, power, and goodness of God who are the true sons of Abraham. Again, links to the comment earlier that the heirs of the promise, the people that are in that gets that inheritance of the promise that God made to Abraham are people that have accepted Jesus as their Lord and personal Savior. Now, when you go into like depths of theology like this, it's like, my God, on a Sunday, why is this guy doing Bible study? But the reality is that in the world we live now, Sunday school knowledge is not enough to face the complexities of the questions that we get asked when we go out to evangelize. And it is so important as believers that we have a deeper knowledge of, when you say God is faithful, what, what does that mean? You know, when you say God is love, what does that mean? And, you know, as we go in this journey, you know, Pastor was saying, you know, that there are some places that we've left. You know, we want to go deeper, you know, in our knowledge 
because we carry the Bible. The Bible is the, you know, the message of the Bible is the promise. It is important for us to understand it, and it is important for us to be able to convey it. That's, that's important. But also beyond that, it emphasizes the fact that as believers, it is important that we know the, what God is saying to us. Because all of these things I've said, you know, I've, I believe I've emphasized the capacity and staying power of God. So it means that when God is saying to you, the same way God spoke to Abraham and said, I will give you a son, God is saying to you your own message of what I want you to do with your life, what I want to do with you, or what I want you to do. It is important for us to have the relationship with God to say, God, what do you want to do with my life? What are you saying to me in this season? What are the promises that I need to hold on to, you know, that are personal revelations about my life? Because if you want to determine someone's reliability, you must first look at their track record, and we now know that God is faithful. So now for us, we need to know what is God saying to me? What are the promises of God for me? What is God saying to me in this season? And what am I holding on to the promises of God, or am I changing my mind and say, oh, this is too hard, and I'm not holding to the promises of God. God backs up his promises with himself. He fulfills his promises. He honors his word. He completes his work. He completes his work. There's no detail that he misses out. And just as God could look down through centuries and generations and foresee the details of Jesus' life, nothing in your life is catching him by surprise. Let somebody shout hallelujah. Even if he's catching you by surprise, aren't you glad that he's not catching God by surprise? Let somebody shout hallelujah. So like I said earlier, the enemy may try. He may try, and he will try from time to time. But we know that our tomorrow is settled in God. Our tomorrow is settled in God. So I want to encourage us today, be familiar with the promises of God for your life. Be familiar. Pray daily about what God has said to you and what he said is going to fulfill in your life. You know, I, 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 I extracted an excerpt of something Charles uh, Spurgeon said. He said, the promises of God are of to the believer or are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. They are an armory containing all manner of offensive and defensive weapons. They are a pharmacy in which the believer find all manner of restoratives. So, for believers... It is important for us to know what God is saying to us in season, what God is telling us about what is to come. And it is important for us to hold on to that because we know that God is faithful. So, um, I want to use also this opportunity to say, though, that the story of Adam, like I kind of said earlier, is very similar to every man. The story of Adam actually speaks to a pattern of how man typically uses his will. Typically uses his will to eat always of the, true, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But we know that God has made provision that it does not have to be uh, like that. 
Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. If you want to be a blessing to others, share the message. To stay connected, download our app and follow us on Instagram at Lighthouse Church Ottawa. We love you.